This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to another episode on the New Books Network. I'm one of the hosts, Dr. Miranda Melcher, and I'm very excited today to be interviewing Dr. Emily Joan Ward about her book titled Royal Childhood and Child Kingship, Boy Kings in England, Scotland, France and Germany from the time period of 1050 to 1262. The book has just come out in 2022 from Cambridge University Press, and as the title suggests, examines what we see around ideas of kingship, of rulership, of governance, when we look at it through the lens of boy kings, of essentially children as monarchs in these four countries. Um, This is interesting kind of on a lot of levels to me, uh, both in terms of understanding and unpacking the history of these particular monarchs in a bit more detail rather than sort of glossing it over as ah they were they were children we'll focus on them once they become adults um but also kind of doing some useful myth busting to perhaps some tropes that we have around sort of ah boy kings are always a bad thing they always lead to chaos and anarchy um as well as helping us understand how kingship as a concept really changed during this time period in ways that have ramifications far beyond these particular monarchs um, in these countries' histories. So, Emily, I'm really pleased to welcome you to the podcast. Thank you for having me on. It's um, it's a real pleasure to be here and to be able to talk about the book. Could you start us off, please, by introducing yourself and explaining why you decided to write this book? Yeah, so uh, my name's Emily Jane Ward. Um, I'm currently a British Academy postdoctoral fellow uh, at the University of Edinburgh, um, uh, sort of a bit of brief biographical information about me. I did my uh, my undergraduate and my master's at the University of East Anglia in uh, in Norwich. Uh, then I went a couple of years working for local government before going back to do a PhD thesis at Cambridge. Um, and this book is sort of the culmination of um, a lot more thinking added on top of um, the the PhD thesis. So it started life as the PhD, uh, but then became something, something looking quite different from the thesis that I submitted back in 2017. Um, I was lucky enough to get uh, sort of postdoc 
doctoral funding uh, for research fellowships after I finished the thesis. So it's really, I've, I've had the benefit of time to develop these ideas and think a bit more about how I wanted to present it as a book. Um, yeah. So I think the real motivation for deciding to write it probably started when I was doing my master's at the University of East Anglia. Um, I did an essay on Henry III of England, uh, one of the boy kings that features in the book. And this essay sort of examined why was there a child king in 1216? Um, Henry III comes to the throne when there's actually a contender for the kingship, an adult contender uh, for the kingship in in the Kingdom of England at the time. Um, so Louis, the son of the King of France, is actually there as an adult contender. Um, and he'd been invited in by the English barons um, in opposition to uh, Henry's father, King John. So for me, it was a really interesting point where actually um, there is a child in opposition to an adult. And, you know, you might assume that actually it would be easier for the adult to become king. But it he doesn't. Um, Henry himself is crowned as a boy king of um, eight years old. And um, yeah, so I started a real fascination there with the fact that child kingship sort of counters some of these paradoxes, I think, um, or it, it appears as a paradox and counters some of the assumptions that we make that kingship has to be an adult male on the throne and that that's always the best choice. Um, and when I went looking around for the big book written about all of this uh, stuff and I realised there wasn't one, I decided that was probably a very good place to start uh, writing my PhD and then turning it into the book afterwards. Um, I did then actually find that there was a big book written on it, but it was written in German. Um, so Tylo Offergeld's study of earlier medieval child kingship has been really helpful as I've been thinking about it for a slightly later period. But his study um, start sort of starts very early but goes through till the 11th century and mine it doesn't quite uh, take over where he left off because I think we're taking quite different approaches um, but definitely um, this is sort of the first study of child kingship as a kind of comparative um, thing across northwestern Europe in the period between the 11th and 13th centuries. Well that's a very cool um, thing to find um, and I think a lot of us come to projects that way of kind of Hmm, I've encountered a thing. I'm curious about it. I'm going to go read more. Oh, wait, there is no book on that topic. Oh, oh. <laughs> and that can either be a very exciting thing to realize, um, but does often, I think, for a lot of us start off as overwhelming. So it's exciting to kind of see it all come together in this wonderful, completed book. Yes, definitely. And I, I think, yeah, I mean, <laughs> the book would have come to a, a very, a very quick end if I'd turned around and there was in fact something written. <laughs> so yeah, no, it was, it was, um, yeah, it just, I, I guess it just like, like a lot of us, it became, a, it became an issue that I just suddenly wanted to know more about, wanted to read more sources about and started delving into it and realised how much there was to say really. Brilliant. Well, hopefully um, in this interview, we're not going to quite do the full detail um, of the book <laughs> justice, but we can do a bit of a highlights tour, hopefully, of some of the main points. Um, but before we get into some of the specific arguments you're making, obviously, one of the key things about this book is that it is a comparative study. And um, you rely in some senses quite heavily and obviously talk about the ramifications of this further on, but there are sort of six central case studies of the book. So I'm wondering if you can tell us kind of what they are and how did you choose these six? Mm, yeah, so the six case studies are across four different kingdoms, England, Scotland, France and Germany. Um, and 
I mean, if I just sort of list them, that's probably the simplest way. Um, Henry the Fourth of Germany, Philip the First of France, Malcolm the Fourth, King of Scots, Henry the Third of England, Louis the Ninth of France, and Alexander the Third, another King of Scots. And they basically, um, so Henry the Fourth of Germany is the chronologically earliest one who was crowned at the age of three in 1054, and then became sole ruler of the German kingdom um, or the empire uh, at the age of five in 1056. And then all the way through sort of two centuries later, we've got Alexander III, the boy king of Scots, um, who's born in 1241 and then uh, crowned or inaugurated uh, because the Scottish kings don't yet um, have coronation and anointing as part of their ceremonies, but inaugurated in 1249 at the age of eight. So these are the six core case studies. I mean, the book spans quite broadly. So really, at certain points, I'm paying far closer attention to these six case studies. Um, At other points, I'm kind of trying to think a bit more broadly about where where children and royal children fit in um, fit into ideas of kingship. So um, I think you know they're they're sort of my my starting point, but they're not necessarily the only cases uh, that I follow. Um, and the main reason that I picked those six was because the four kingdoms that uh, the book focuses on are ones that are really intimately linked by things like marital alliances. Um, different networks between the kingdoms of diplomacy um, and a range of other different influences. But they're often seen as kingdoms that have quite different approaches to kingship. So it struck me as an interesting way of thinking about kingship more broadly to focus on something they have that these four kingdoms have in common, the fact that boys were accepted and boys under the age of 14 were accepted. Um, that might be the other thing to say is the other reason I picked these six was because they all came to the throne, their thrones um, as sole rulers under the age of um, about 14 or 15, which is the cutoff point for Latin ideas of puritia, um, childhood. So that was sort of how I how I limited myself on the case studies. Um, and I add to that particularly um, with looking a little bit at Frederick II, who's a boy king of Sicily, but has a claim to the German throne. And another um, interesting case study that features quite prominently is that of Philip II of France, um, who comes to that thro- his throne as a sole ruler right on that turning point between sort of childhood and adolescence. So that was, a, that was an interesting case for me as well. Mm. Thank you for introducing us a bit to the cases. Um, And even just in that kind of brief description, that already opens up a whole bunch of things that I'm probably going to ask you more about. (laughs) Um, But I'd love to go first to something you actually mentioned in your first answer, which is, of course, the example of um, Henry III, which I admit I also had been puzzled by, but certainly never noticed the fact I was puzzled, essentially, um, and kind of going, well, hang on a second. He is a child. There is an adult king who is invited, who's there, and yet somehow the child becomes king. And I had never really thought further than that, but it did register as a bit odd. Um, And so I'd love to kind of think a little bit about that idea that you show during this period, it became easier to put a child on a throne rather than get rid of a child, a child king. And so this idea that we might kind of automatically assume that, oh, well, that's clearly the last resort. That's clearly what we don't want to happen. We're going to do everything we possibly can to make sure that doesn't happen. And if it does happen, well, we'll fix it quickly. You know, we'll come up with some other (laughs) method. Um, You show in the book is actually really not a correct assumption. So why does it become easier, in fact, during this time period to 
put a child on the throne and in fact harder to get rid of a child king than maybe we assume. Yeah, um, I apologise if there was a beeping noise there. That was an email coming through. I've now turned off my emails. Um, Sorry for that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, so I think... um, it's it's important to perhaps say that the central middle ages the period i'm focusing on between the 11th and 13th centuries is not the only time period that we see boy kings actually this idea that childhood and rulership has a much longer history much lengthier history and obviously going into the late medieval period and early modern periods as well and even up until the very recent modern day um children are, are always an important part of dynastic rule when you have the sort of blood right uh, to rule as we still do even in the modern monarchy. Um, But one of the reasons I really wanted to focus on a lengthier period um, between the 11th and 13th centuries was it struck me as this is the time where you actually see an increasing political stability around children as rulers um, and more of an investment in them as both preparing them to be kings, uh, but also then an investment in their their rule when they're on the throne as well. Um, There's a range of different interrelated factors, I think, that are perhaps relevant here. Um, One of the things that's very intriguing is that there's a decline in violence against your boy kings during the period that I focus on. So um, people familiar perhaps with the earlier Middle Ages might think of the Merovingian uh, rulers of France, sort of 6th and 7th century where we have quite a lot of boy kings um, but a lot of them who meet quite nasty ends Um, so the assassination of child heirs to the throne or um, the assassination of boy kings even after they've come to the throne Um, that doesn't seem to be typical of the period that I'm focusing on so there was less of a resort to killing or harming your boy kings and I wanted to explore a little bit more about why that was. And I think the automatic assumption some people have made is that that's primogeniture um, is solely responsible. Um, And that's clearly, clearly changing practices of succession and inheritance are important, but it's not the sole reason. Um, What you do get over this time is you get a sort of greater acceptance of royal children as the most appropriate candidates for the throne. Um, So you see less competition from uh, adult contenders in terms of their family members. So uh, whereas previously certain polities had relied on fraternal succession, so the throne passing uh, between brothers, that doesn't seem to be as common as you're going into the 11th, 12th and definitely by the 13th centuries. You also see less competition between half and step siblings. Um, Now, this isn't because kings stop having uh, multiple sexual partners, but that's interrelated to this other idea about the the more prominent reliance on the children from one one woman and one queen in particular. Um, So the way in which... uh, Children within this period are usually, uh, not exclusively, but usually uh, the children of two anointed monarchs, so both a king and a queen, which hasn't necessarily been the case um, at earlier periods either. So I think it's 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 not a simplistic reason that it becomes easier uh, to place a child on the throne. There's multiple uh, different factors, but decline in violence, um, definitely decline in violence against anointed kings, um, but also in changing practices of succession inheritance and changing ideas around marriage and queenship are especially important. 
I found this particularly interesting um, as an argument because it isn't just about kind of the individual of the boy king. It's it's not just an answer of, oh, well, this particular one was charismatic and precocious and therefore everyone changed their minds. Um, it's thinking about, well, hang on a second, what do changes in um, the status of women, how does that have an impact? Um, the status of queens having coronations. So I think that's, I mean, primogeniture is almost certainly part of it, but I like your more complicated answer as well for helping us understand this. I mean, it's a classic academic art answer, isn't it? It's a far more complicated situation. Um, yeah, but but I, I think I think you have to consider multiple factors when you're looking at the reason that there are potentially not only more child kings during this period, which isn't necessarily the case. There aren't necessarily more, but what there are is children who come to their throne and then they might face rebellions or revolts at various points, but they're ne- they never seem to be as explicitly for the removal of the boy king in the same way. And you don't seem to get um, the desire to um, commit regicide and kill off your boy kings because that's an easy solution. Um, there's, a, there's more of a respect for the institution of kingship, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, even when that's embodied in, uh, the, in the figure of a young child. Mm. So this is obviously some of the myth busting that I mentioned um, initially, that we do, again, have this assumption. And in fact, you demonstrate that there are scholars and writers in the later medieval period, in the early modern period, um, that do have this assumption that, okay, boy kings, therefore chaos, anarchy, death, destruction. Um, And yet, as you've just explained to us, that's increasingly not the case. Um, Are there, you know, is the answer you've explained to us already about kind of um, changes of other things around this sort of having an influence, obviously primogeniture being one of them. um, Are there other factors for sort of why we both have this assumption and also why it's probably not true? Mm. I think one of the one of the things I really wanted to do um, throughout the book was go back to the contemporary sources, because I think there is a reliance sometimes on um, non-contemporary sources to make larger statements about child kingship. So I think sometimes the fact that there are very obviously times where your uh, your periods of child kingship are unstable, where periods of um, there are very violent reaction against children as rulers. And you do get complaints from political elites about the very fact that there is a child on the throne, and that is problematic. However, that doesn't necessarily apply because that might apply in one period, maybe the earlier Middle Ages, maybe the 6th or 7th centuries. That doesn't necessarily mean we can assume that that's the case in the 11th or the 12th or the 13th. Um, So what I was trying to do throughout was really go back to the near contemporary sources as much as possible to try and avoid doing that. Well, because it was a violent case of child kingship um, in, I don't know, in 9th century England, actually, that's going to definitely be the case three centuries later. And I think when you do that, you're struck not only by the fact that your child kings don't get deposed or um, blinded or mutilated in some way to remove them from royal authority. Also, I was struck, at least, by the fact that there's actually a lot of positive biblical models and uh, other historical models of child kingship. And these are really, I think, cultivated by writers between the 11th and 13th centuries. So there's a there's a far more positive cultural association of child kingship than we might assume. Um, and that is 
perhaps a really important way for rethinking the automatic association of child kingship with violence is that that's not even the the sole image that is being presented to us by our sources. Um, so a little bit more detail about that. Um, biblical models are a very important um, way in which ideas and representations of kingship circulated throughout the entire Middle Ages. Um, so particularly, you know, people like King David, King Solomon, uh, Christ as king. Um, these are very important ways of understanding ideas about political power and authority. But we have something similar when it comes to boy kings. So we have the use of Old Testament models, such as the kings of Judah, so Jehoash and Josiah, um, who both came to the thrones as young boys of sort of seven or eight years old. Um, we have the writers actually praising these uh, these biblical models as times where there was collaborative rule between um, magnates and children and kings, um, where there was uh, greater peace and stability even. Um, and even contrasting the sort of period of child kingship with a negative model of adult rule where those things are somehow lacking as soon as you uh, lose, as soon as the, the boy king comes of age and uh, doesn't have to rule in that same collaborative way. Um, I was also particularly struck by the fact that most of the coronation orders, so the liturgical um, texts used in coronation ceremonies, actually place a boy king quite centrally. So King David, this adult ruler and model of kingship, started as an anointed king, anointed uh, at the hand of the prophet um, uh, prophet Samuel, uh, anointed as a child. So he became king under God's kind of divine command as a child. And his, his whole kingship was sort of based on this selection of him as a child. And that's a model that you see in most of the coronation orders for these four kingdoms, um, apart from Scotland, which, as I said, has a very different inauguration ceremony. But the um, orders used for France, for the empire and for England all make references to the boy king and the humble boy king David praising this idea that the humility of childhood is something essential to kingship, uh, not something contrary to it. Um, yeah, I, I think that that's actually a really powerful way of thinking about uh, ideas about kingship and the interrelationship with childhood is that childhood is actually seen as something that can be a positive asset uh, to rulership rather than simply a negative, uh, politically disruptive um, aspect. Mm. Yes, definitely very interesting. And to so clearly see examples kind of as soon as you go look for them, which maybe yeah. you should go look for them. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, there's some fascinating stories of the boy, uh, Christ as a boy king, um, and they're, they're growing over this period as well. So that kind of idea that childhood and kingship are somehow able to be uh, united, so you're able to have the sort of... Um, the power and authority of rule embodied in a child is actually something that you see tons of examples for and growing over this period, not just in Latin uh, cultural outputs, but also in the vernacular as well. Um, these stories become very popularly circulated. So it's an idea that I think a lot more people within the Middle Ages themselves, within medieval society, would have been familiar with. It's not, we come from it perhaps from the idea that it's an aberration in some sense. Um, I don't actually think that would be how people would be approaching it in the 11th to 13th centuries. Hmm. Very helpful. 
very helpful. All right. Well, continuing our highlights tour, um, I'd like to pick up on something else that you mentioned a little bit already and ask you to tell us more about it, which is about the idea of child preparation, I guess, children's education, preparation um, to becoming kings. And obviously, in some cases, obviously, the child becomes king way too young for any sort of preparation to really have taken place. Um, But one thing I particularly appreciated about the book is that um, although you do have these, as we said, six case studies, you do expand beyond that. And so you also talk about uh, child heirs. So before they actually become king and what we can see of kind of how they are prepared to rule, especially it seems in cases where it looks like they're going to become king still as a child or at least as an adolescent. Um, And you mentioned earlier that this sort of preparation and education changes over the time period in the book. So I'm wondering if you can tell us about kind of what these changes were and why they were happening. Yeah, so um, when you start looking for examples of children in royal documents and royal decision making, you suddenly realise that once again, that there are actually a lot more examples out there than you might have assumed. Um, And there's one way of thinking about those where you can just kind of write them off as being formulaic tropes or the involvement of family. But actually, each of those sort of interactions with royal rule was formative, not only, you know, it was an active choice to include your children in those decision making processes. Um, And they're also important for the own the child themselves as they're coming to uh, to an understanding of what kingship and rulership is and their own place within that and their own place within a, a dynasty. Um, so yes, there are there are those moments where you know we have very very young infants being incorporated in royal documents and they obviously would not have understood how exactly they were being included, why exactly they were perhaps present at an event if they were in fact present, um, but that sort of lays the groundwork for then for this more active uh, preparation as well. Um, And as you said, this sort of period between the 11th and 13th centuries, one of the things I wanted to do was to try and work out what was changing for children over that period. So how children's experiences of, of how they themselves found out about being a king and what that meant, um, how that was changing. And there's, a huge amount of changes in documentary culture and um, ideas of uh, royal administration and administrative practices, and the sort of administrative nature of royal government is really uh, is really changing over this period, and that does alter how children are included. Um, during the 11th and 12th centuries, we've sort of got the naming of children being very important within that. So actually, specific specific names. So. Um, the boy kings sort of at the start of my my study, uh, so Philip I of France or Henry IV of Germany, you see them actually named um, and named at important points uh, with their consent, their assent. Um, you see, for example, when there's dynastically significant events like um, Louis VI in, of France restoring his father's crown to Saint-Denis in 1120, you actually get the naming of the heir, so the naming of the young ch- child there alongside their, their father and often their mother as well. But by the 13th century, this process of sort of standardization of documents um, has really shifted that. So in, you, instead of having instead of having named and more personal individual references to children, you get a complete shift to something more generic and uh, less specific. Um, 
this kind of generic terminology for heirs and successors, so in Latin, heres and successores, tends to dominate instead, and you get less of these individual references to children. And I don't think that means that children were any less important by the 13th century um, uh, in terms of how they needed to be educated and prepared for rule. But it does say that perhaps from the 13th century, we shouldn't be looking in the documents for that. We should be looking elsewhere. Um, And that is what seems to happen is that you get less of an idea as sort of as an heir and successor becomes more of a legal category, you get less of a need to actually name your specific children because there is an assumption that what you're saying applies to all of your children, um, present and future. Uh, and it's more of a legal category uh, than the need to name a, spe- a specific child. Now, that's interesting because often the shift in administrative practices over this period is seen as one from memory to written record. That's quite a, a famous um and a sort of fantastic book written by Michael Clancy that has takes that as its title. Um, and one of the arguments I make when I'm talking about these documents and the documentary shifts is that actually it may be a shift from memory to written record, but what you're actually seeing is children, individual children almost being written out of the written record. So you see this shift from them being named and personal to a more anonymous role where actually you couldn't then associate precisely which heir or successor was being intended um, rather than this sort of more uh, legal category. And the documents themselves are changing in in other ways as well, which affect how children were incorporated within them. So um, children in the 11th century, uh, like Philip I of France, we've often seen um, witnessing documents even in Philip's case, applying uh, autograph cross signatures to documents alongside his mother and father. But over the period, we get the increasing use of um, seals as a way of authenticating documents and um, sealing practices uh, become far more associated with an impression of the individual and children don't seem to get seals. So if you're a royal child, you don't receive a seal at your birth. You don't receive a seal, you know, when you hit your third birthday or something. Um, It tends to be only once you either hold office in some official capacity, sometimes as king, um, or when you reach an age of adolescence and youth. So again, there's this legal category in which seals apply to you as almost a young adult in a way which you wouldn't have been able to use a seal as a child because you don't have one. Um, the changes aren't the same everywhere, and I'm sort of, um, uh, sort of in, in what I've said there, I haven't really been able to bring out some of the nuances um, of the different kingdoms. But these are really important changes because they mean that children are not necessarily travelling with their parents at these specific ceremonies of uh, land transactions or um, confirmations of the charters of religious communities anymore. If they're there, we will get less of an insight into it because we don't know that we don't have the document surviving that says that they're there uh, with their parents. Um, But what we do have instead uh, is more references to sort of ritual household practices. I'm especially interested in the ways in which children are involved in things like royal arms giving practices. So this would this particularly for the French and English kings, this seems to become more important from the 13th century. And in part, you also get this uh, development of separate households for children, which is another key 
change over this period. The idea that they wouldn't necessarily been, have been traveling as frequently with the royal court of their mother and father as the king and queen, but instead actually might have been uh, based somewhere else instead. Um, so their education is almost separated off from uh, the court the, the royal court as it is itinerating. Um, and instead, what you get is sort of their education being confined perhaps in a specific location or um, with uh, sort of specific uh, tutors who weren't taking them alongside their mother and father, um, but were keeping them in one place instead. Mm. Lots of very interesting changes. Um, and that idea of kind of the more fixed location, or at least not staying with the court, I think we're going to come back to in a minute. Um mm. But I want to sort of stay on this idea of kind of how much we see the children um, in these sort of political acts and to what extent sort of seeing them in a charter is or is not um, evidence of kind of them being important. Because um, I think that it's really interesting to see how all these different things are changing, right, in terms of governance and um, sort of standardization, I suppose, of methods of rule um, kind of at the same time. And of course, one of the things that is kind of has to be true to some extent is that children, um, especially heirs, don't have the same agency as adults, um, probably not even of adult heirs necessarily. And yet it also seems way too simplified and probably just factually wrong to assume that royal children being children, being especially heirs rather than kings, are purely passive participants. You know, they might be there, their name might be in the record, but really they're just standing there and essentially looking pretty. To what extent can we sort of understand agency and sort of active participation in these kinds of contexts? Yeah, I think it's really important what you were saying there about um, the fact that agency is not sort of this zero-sum game. You don't have it or not. There's actually a, a whole interspersed um, and uh, sort of a process of varying stages of involvement and participation. Um, and you can't just say, well, child children were completely passive and we know that they were completely passive all the way till age 18 and then suddenly it changes no it's, it's far more fluctuating it's far more of a process and that's really important um and i think it's something that sometimes gets lost perhaps in the historiography um you sort of assume that because you come across a child's name or they couldn't have been doing something or they weren't there or purely because we're making those assumptions from a more modern perspective perhaps rather than thinking about that uh, within its own contemporary context now, there are obviously occasions where, um, as I said before, children can't have expected to be involved as actively. So if we think about things like um, Henry IV of Germany, when he's only six weeks old and still unbaptized, we're told, he has an oath of allegiance sworn to him uh, by the German princes at one of the Christmas courts. I mean, was he there? We actually don't even know that. What's interesting to me, though, is that it's very clear that even in those cases where we're talking very young infant children being incorporated within uh, some of the actions of um, of politics and rule, um, these events were probably located so that they were nearby. And there's still this symbolic um, idea that the closer they are to the event happening, the more important that is uh, for emphasising their significance in rule. 
And even when they're involved in actions more passively like that, it shows this from a very early age, how much they're integrated within these networks of uh, of rulership, of lordship, um, and the obligations and uh, expectations that are sort of already being imposed upon them uh, before they even are really able to comprehend that. And that does then lay the groundwork for this more active agency-based uh, role um, later in their childhood. And there's quite a clear uh, distinction, I think, between when you're talking about your infant children, maybe two or three years old, with then when you're getting to sort of um, perhaps later childhood from sort of age seven onwards, and then into that sort of point around age 11 and 12 as well. Children do seem to be taken more seriously as political actors in their own right, the later we get into childhood. But even at age sort of seven or eight, we're still seeing them being taken seriously on a political stage. And the active role that they're taking is an important part of their education as future rulers, as well as perhaps an immediate response uh, for their father or uh, the political elite in a particular moment. Um, So children are taken on tours of kingdoms at a young age. Uh, The 11-year-old Malcolm IV, King of Scots, um, after his father's death, his grandfather sends him off on the tour of Scotia, uh, accompanied by the Earl of Fife. That physical presence in the locality is really important. And that's not just him being displayed. We can imagine there that actually there's a need for not only for him to be seen, but also to him him to be seen as an actual agent in his own right and being supported by uh, prominent magnates. But there's also cases where children sort of allow adult rulers to sort of circumvent some of the perhaps the more norms of diplomatic um, or, or diplomatic interactions with other rulers, for example. Um, and they they embody the strength of a dynasty, even if they themselves are not the one who sort of organised uh, the event. Um, so particularly in cases of homage between different rulers, um, that's often coming from a position where um, kings use their, use their child children not just as tools, but there's the combination of it's doing the the ruling king a favour to not have to swear homage themselves, but also it's actually showing that the king uh, king's son is already being accepted as the next ruler of the kingdom um, once they've died, and they're able to um, use that as part of the forming the training for kingship as well. So that foreign recognition of an heir could be really important, and is another way I think where that. It, do they have agency or not, does not work um, because it's actually multiple um, different reasons for incorporating your children, uh, not just to sort of demonstrate their passivity, but actually to show that they have that active role on an international stage and will continue to do so as they're going forwards. Um, And perhaps a final example in the coronations of boy kings as well. So some of the the children that I'm studying were actually crowned alongside their fathers, so during their father's reigns. Um, And active participation seems to be particularly important in some of the kingdoms I'm looking at, namely France and England, less so in Germany, where it does seem that you do have very young children uh, crowned like the three-year-old Henry IV. But in France, age seven seems to be a bent the minimum that you could be um, crowned at. And there does seem to be this assumption, or not not assumption, sorry, but this expectation that you needed your child to be able to consent 
in a meaningful way to the promises that they were making at their coronation. Uh, but also, I mean, Philip I's coronation in 1059 happens on the day of his seventh birthday. Um, but he has to, we're told by one of the, uh, the surviving memorandum of the coronation, he has to affirm his faith vocally in front of the people in attendance and read and sign a declaration of faith. So it really involves a level of engagement that you couldn't perhaps expect a three or four-year-old boy to do. But by age seven, you've already been taught and educated how to uh, how to perhaps manage yourself in a public formal setting like that, but also to have the confidence to be able to read and do these things in public um, and convey a sense of that uh, royal dignity whilst doing it. Wonderful. Um, thank you for explaining that, because I think it is often a perplexing thing of like, well, how do we think about agency in the case of six weeks old? Um, but explaining that it does change over time. And I, I found it really fascinating kind of how important the idea of being essentially seven or eight and being able to consent was considered. And there were so many examples in the book where it clearly was important. It wasn't just kind of a tick box exercise or sort of a nice thing to have. Um, you know, they went to a lot of effort to ensure that these things were still done in a way that maybe today we wouldn't maybe take seven-year-olds' opinions quite so seriously. Um, yeah, and I and I, I think again, one of the key arguments of the book is that we need to think a little bit more closely about the life cycle when we're uh, when we're approaching kingship, um, and that I think. You know, I've done that on a very minimal scale, looking focusing particularly on on childhood, um, but I think that perhaps needs to be expanded out as well. Hmm, that makes sense. Um, cool areas for future research. Maybe <laughs> at the end we'll ask you a little bit about your next thing. So we'll see um, maybe what you're working on. Um, but for now, I want to stay on this book and talk about obviously the moment of becoming king, right? Because that's clear um, and very important in a lot of senses, and obviously uh, for people in the UK, something that's particularly top of mind at the minute as we're recording this in late September 2022. Um, and one of the things that I thought was fascinating is you talk about how a king's deathbed wishes were really important, um, but also became more significant as the time period that you're looking at progresses. Um, and I thought this is really interesting in and of itself, and also to think about in terms of where the child was if they weren't necessarily with the king as much anymore and how that maybe played into things um but can you tell us about sort of what was so significant about the deathbed wishes why did it become more so and and why is thinking about it not just in terms of well of course anything a king says on their deathbed is important but particularly when it comes to deathbed communication around the idea of dying and leaving a child as king next. Mm. Yeah, um, I mean, I think in part one of the reasons that they become so more or become more significant by the 13th century is that we have more written records surviving, which actually go into a bit greater detail, uh, a bit more, a bit more detail about um, what the king might have been suggesting or saying. Um, so, written records of deathbed wishes are more likely to survive by the 13th century. They still don't survive in every case, so we can't uh, can't always turn to those. Um, and they're still not 
hugely detailed documents expressing exactly what you want to do with your child as soon as um, uh, they come to the throne. So they're not hugely prescriptive either. They um, they give some details, but not, you know, not not as precisely detailed arrangements as you might find uh, into the sort of later Middle Ages. Um, where you get very specific people attached to very specific roles and um yeah far more far more clarity around that written down in a legal sense but i think one of the things that's really important about deathbed wishes over this period is that there is a great need to sort of justify the care of king and kingdom and ease acceptance of uh, the guardianship arrangements for your young child. Um, So a really key example of that is uh, in 1226, um, when Louis VIII dies, uh, Louis VIII of France. Um, His deathbed wishes appear to be that his wife, the queen, uh, Blanche of Castile, was to have guardianship of their eldest son, Louis the Ninth, uh, the kingdom, and all of their other children, and they have many other children surviving as well, um, until all of the children, so both Louis the Ninth and his brothers and sisters, reach an age of legal majority. Um, that record of wishes actually doesn't come from Louis himself. It comes through a letter that was uh, recorded um, after his death by people who had been around the deathbed. So I think in one sense, that gives us a nice insight into the fact that it's not necessarily that we're, we're uh, the deathbed wishes of the old king weren't important in the 11th and 12th centuries. It's perhaps that we're actually missing the evidence because it would have been conveyed orally. And in this case, in 1226, it's just fantastic that we have the record surviving where the bishops were writing down. And one of the reasons they were doing so was almost certainly to help justify uh, Blanche's position as guardian of king, boy king and kingdom. Um and publicise the ecclesiastical backing she had for her position as guardian. Um, And the terminology used throughout is very legally sensitive to um, the different ways in which she could and could not act. And it's just, I think, very clear there that there was probably more of a hesitancy around accepting her as the sole uh, carer for her son, but also the governor and uh, administrator of the kingdom uh, on his behalf, um, probably there was some hesitation from the uh, political elites and the magnates, um, clearly not from most of the ecclesiastical uh, magnates who were on her side, um, but perhaps from the secular elites, the uh, the, the princes um, of various of the territories within medieval France. Another reason that it perhaps does become more significant to record your deathbed wishes is that kings start asking the Pope to get involved more frequently uh, in the or by the 13th century. Um, so you have, for example, King John in England uh, seeking the support of Pope Honorius III in 1216. Um, and the language used within the letter is to help his eldest son succeed to paternal inheritance. Um, so again, kind of couching this in uh, legal terminology, uh, but also actually approaching the Pope as somebody who could ease that moment of transition uh, to the new ruler. There is something of a tension, I think, however, between representations and realities. Um, A lot of the documents that survive, which perhaps are the the wills and testaments of kings in the late 12th and 13th century, aren't actually made at the moment of the deathbed. They're, um, They're made earlier. So we can look back on those as perhaps helpful guides as to what they might have intended, 
but we don't necessarily uh, know that that was what they assumed would then happen if the child succeed or if their son succeeded as still while still a child. Um, so this tension between representation and reality is also really interesting because one of the reasons that deathbed wishes become so important is only after the king has died in order to justify who is taking care and control of the king and uh, the kingdom. So who will be looking after your boy king and who will be administering the kingdom on their behalf? Um, and there's a really interesting case uh, after the death of Emperor Henry uh, VI, um, when he dies in 1197, he's his death is closely followed by that of uh, his wife, the Empress Constance, in 1198. And there's some really, really uh, crucial debate there between um, the papacy on the one hand um, and one of the magnates who's been uh, quite important during Henry VI rule, Markwood of Anvila, who's the Duke and, Mar- uh, Duke and Margrave. Um, and he is accused of having the testament of uh, Henry VI and then lying about what it says in order to try and justify his own position. Um, but again, representation in reality, because the only people we have telling this story about the testament are the pro-papal sources who are really trying to bolster the Pope's involvement as well. Um, so we're left with this. We don't have the document itself surviving Um, we just have the accusation that it was being used to help justify the position. So that's sort of with the benefit of hindsight. These deathbed wishes, um, regardless of what was actually perhaps said at the deathbed or what was written down, they become very important to help justify after the event who has control of king and kingdom. Mm. Well, this in some ways goes back to what we were saying before around kind of to what extent we can think of um, boy kings as being a time particularly prone to anarchy and violence um, because of this idea of kind of control. And obviously any moment of transition in a political system can be um, a moment where lots of things are up in the air. Um, But I was particularly taken by your argument, thinking about magnates um, and thinking about kind of protecting one's position and things like that. One of your arguments is actually that we can see these contests between different aristocrats, especially when they turn violent, actually as an indication of legitimacy of child rulers in some senses, not as some sort of chaos. Oh, look, there's no adult king anymore. We can throw the rules out the window. Um, And that we can actually see this even in some actions that seem maybe quite extreme, like kidnapping the boy king, for example. Um, So how can we understand kind of magnate contention for power and actions that maybe seem to be against the king as actually maybe not quite what we think of them as. Yeah. um, And I mean, the frequency of kidnap, I mean, you can see that throughout the period and across most of the kingdoms that I'm, I'm studying and the form the the cases in the book. Um, But it's actually a way of renegotiating the power balance in the kingdom and protesting against the actions of the boy king's guardians rather than um, a way of protesting the fact that there is a child king. It actually, in one sense, works to bolster the child's position because people are competing who has control over him uh, rather than competing to remove him. So direct challenges to child kings are actually relatively rare. And when they do exist, so I I mentioned earlier um, the case of Henry III of England, where he actually has an adult contender in the kingdom, Louis. Um, 
that's actually very rare. And also the origins of that aren't because there is a child on the throne. Um, the origins of that go far back into uh, into his father's reign. And it's interesting then that even in those cases where you do get the kind of direct opposition to a boy king, it's not necessarily about an opposition to child kingship. Um, and in fact, the fact that Henry III was a child is almost actually beneficial to his case uh, because the Pope is able to argue on his behalf that he can't be blamed, he is an innocent, he can't be blamed for his father's actions. So actually childhood and um, being a child king could be the thing that helps to legitimise you um, in the face of opposition. Um, so you see that in the case of kingship, uh, sorry, in the cases of kidnap, but also in these sort of opposition to the direct challenges as well. Mm. One other aspect of comparison that I thought was particularly interesting is, of course, not just comparing child kings to adult kings and going, okay, well, would the magnates do that in this instance? Um, but crucially, thinking about the idea of absentee kingship, um, where it is also sort of a, a time period or a state that we might have assumptions about sort of anarchy and loss of control, etc. Um, but what can we understand about child kingship by comparing it to absentee kingship? Yeah, I think sometimes in the historiography, it has been um, sort of child kingship has been interpreted as a variation of absentee kingship. So boy kings are seen as somehow an equivalent situation to when your king is off on pilgrimage or crusade or um, when uh, someone like when Richard is captured, for example. So when their adult rulers are held captive. Um, And that's especially the case, I think, when you're looking about English cases and the historiography around uh, uh, English kingship this equation of child kingship with absentee kingship. And my book really firmly tries to knock that one on the head and say like, no, we can't, we can't really equate these things at all. The comparison is useful to an extent and may well have provided some form of model, but it's actually, there's no direct imitation. Um, the big difference is that child kings are not absent. And that's actually one of the things that the guardians and the political elite have to work with is is how you how you encompass an a very very present king who is not yet an adult um and the concerns for the boy king's care education and maintenance of status and royal authority have to be incorporated within part of that approach of how you are governing the kingdom um there's also different terminology and a different conception of royal authority underpinning these and my book picks up on several moments i think where there's a real distinction between ruling and governing uh in the medieval sources and ruling is the exclusive remit of your child king. Um, Whereas when you have an absent king, the king can often delegate the act of rule to someone else in their absence. When you have a child king, the child king is ruling and the act of governing or administering the affairs of the kingdom is the thing that is delegated. Um, And it's it may sound like a very small distinction, but it's not. It's actually really important um, because these are the things that... These are the things that um, sort of create this picture of what kingship is. Um, and child kingship is firmly a part of that. It's not this aberration and it's not simply the lack of a king. Um, there's a really 
interesting story, which I open one of the chapters with, um, John of Salisbury in his Polycraticus. Um, so one of these formative texts for understanding kind of political theory in the central Middle Ages. Um, John talks about a Macedonian infant king who's laid in this basket at the front of a battlefield. Um, but he says that that's actually a far more preferable situation to there being a lack of a king. Um, there is a king at a previous point the uh, the Macedonians lost a battle because they had no king at all. Now they have a king. They fight for their king, even though he is an infant. Um, so there's a real conceptual divide, I think, in medieval political theory between absenteeism and child kingship, which hasn't yet been probed as well and perhaps as far as it should have been. Um, and I don't think the two can be equated. And I, I hope that the book makes that case quite strongly. <laughs> I was pretty persuaded reading it. So... <laughs> Excellent, one, one, one person. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so I'd like to kind of, as my final content-based question, really, um, ask you kind of to tell us a bit more about this idea where child kingship is part of sort of the accepted types of ruler, really. Um, because, of course, some things uh, can be the same, but some things do have to be changed around a bit. Uh, you just sort of mentioned that, that they have to figure out what to do with a present king that is not an adult. So one of the things, obviously, that you talk about uh, in specific instances and kind of is a theme of a lot of the book is about how, how do they grapple with this? How does governance and ideas um, kind of figure out what to do when you have a ruler that is accepted and legitimate, but is also a child? So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit about kind of the changes, the innovations, the tweaks really that had to be made during this period so that child kings could be kind of a known fine thing to be getting on with um and could kind of continue with the business of governing the kingdom yeah so i really wanted to emphasize this aspect of innovation and um a sort of experimentation that child kingship can encourage really, again, in part because of that sort of myth-busting that you, you referenced at the start, um, against the assumption that child kingship equals political stagnation, um, but also actually because it's it's very evident that, and I mean, it's sort of, you know, it's quite a quite an obvious thing when you say it, that you, kingship is going to have to change when there is a, a child um, and when there is a more collaborative aspect to the ways in which you are governing and administering your kingdom. So some of the adjustments that have to be made uh, when a boy is king are obviously very practical. Um, so there's some lovely stories of uh, boy kings being carried out of churches for their coronation ceremonies because they get tired or uh, young young rulers losing shoes or parts of their coronation regalia because they're too big for them. Um, and that kind of really, really give you an insight into the sort of the, the physical uh, aspect of having a child king and the practical adjustments that have to be made to even just get through a coronation ceremony, for example. Um, but those aren't the only ways you see kind of these innovations and changes 
there's also an administrative um, innovation. And I'm really interested in even very small shifts in documents that allow a bit more of an insight into um, the ways in which you have to grapple as somebody who's working perhaps as a scribe in the chancery or um, somebody who's trying to write a document to be confirmed by a child king. And the ways in which you had to grapple with, well, how do I represent the king's childhood? Um, Do I? Do I not? Um, And there are many instances where um, the changes may are sort of an especial response to the king being a child. So a a very prominent example is uh, Henry IV of Germany. There's a document which actually addresses him as a child in the intitulatio, so in the opening clause of the document. it calls him puer, child. So these, this is a really important opening phrase, which usually sets the tone for um, the displays of royal authority and the projection of royal authority. And it openly says, the boy Henry, by the grace of God, august king of the Romans. Um, now, that's not... That's not done, you know, to, to highlight that, oh, child kingship is a bad thing. That's actually done because there is an acceptance that childhood is part of um, the part of this this person's kingship. Um, it's not incompatible with their kingship, and it's something that you don't necessarily need to hide. That is only one document, but there are a lot of other cases um, where childhood is still referenced as an important aspect of Henry's kingship. And there are specific clauses that are de- developed uh, by the Chancery at that point to, to refer to that as well. So these development of unique formulae and clauses kind of show that administrative uh, innovation as well. Uh, But there are other changes um, too that sort of reflect the ways in which you have to think how rulership and governance is going to work in practice when there is a boy on the throne. Um, Something I think that could definitely do with more work on it, for example, is uh, the ways in which royal households had to uh, change and adapt, um, particularly in things like uh, movement and travel and itineration. Um, So you see boy kings visiting areas which their fathers perhaps didn't visit, usually because that reflects something like uh, their guardians' uh, areas of particular control. So when Philip I of France um, is taken to Saint-Lee, that's his mother's dower lands, and she at that point is very prominent in in ruling the kingdom alongside him. Um, a few years later, Flanders becomes more important in as a location where Philip's taken, and that's because the Count of Flanders at that point is playing quite a key role. So those shifts in how the itineration of the royal household changes and prominence of new locations, or perhaps the limitations uh, to where boy kings don't go as well. Um, most of them stick quite firmly within their own kingdom uh, boundaries. You don't usually get boy kings travelling, for example, um, to go and go to the land of another another ruler. Um, so I think there's more work to be done there. That's not something that my my book goes hugely into uh, detail in, but it's another example of those innovations and changes to the practices of rulership, which I just think uh, it would be a really interesting place to do another comparative study. So hopefully somebody listening might might go off and, and research that a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for explaining that. I think um, it highlights really beautifully that your book makes some really important contributions, both counteracting sort of received wisdom and assumptions, as well as opening up new areas that we've probably not thought about, or at least not thought about in these ways. Um, And you've in fact highlighted 
at least a few that I can think of off the top of my head, um, areas for further work, which leads us very nicely to my very last and hopefully not trickiest question, um, <laughs> which is that this book is now done. Is there anything that you're currently working on or hoping to work on next that you can give us a little sneak preview of? Yeah. So, um, I mean, leading out of the research, I was particularly interested um, in the fact that it's perhaps <laughs> less problematic to have a child king than it is to have an adolescent king. Um, so I became very interested in I, firstly, ideas about adolescence in the Middle Ages, but also more practically about young people's lives and experiences. Um, the next project uh, I'm working on at the moment is called Adolescence and Belonging in Medieval Europe, um, spanning a similar time period, but moving a little bit away just from thinking about um, kings and uh, and royal children or royal adolescents um, to hopefully broaden that out to um, do a comparative across different environments. So um, thinking a bit more about how children, well, how children, how um, people just post-childhood, so adolescents um, and young young men in particular, how they were included within different communities, different social groups, um, and what it really meant to be at that sort of in-between phase where in some senses you're deemed to be fully adult, but in another sense you haven't yet perhaps um, been integrated within some of those systems and practices. And there are still uh, very much um, sort of ideas around how you should behave and conduct yourself um, that make assumptions about uh, the negative connotations of adolescence in particular. So yeah, that's the new project, Adolescence and Belonging. Um, not so many boy kings or young kings, uh, but hopefully uh, still building on some of the themes that have come up in the book as well. Very much so. That sounds fascinating. Hopefully when that becomes a book, we can have you back and you can tell us all about it. That would be lovely. <laughs> In the meantime, however, while you are off working on it, um, listeners can read the book that we've been discussing, which again is titled Royal Childhood, Royal Child, Childhood. Goodness, why am I having trouble with that? Let me properly say the title so that listeners know exactly what they should go look up. <laughs> Royal Childhood and Child Kingship, Boy Kings in England, Scotland, France and Germany. And we've been speaking to its author, Dr. Emily Joan Ward. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for having me on. Um, yeah, I hope your listeners enjoy hearing a bit more about my book. <laughs>